Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be back in Salt Lake City and especially here at Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church. It's been a long time since we've been here. Uh, working overseas and COVID and all kinds of things have conspired together to keep us from being able to visit uh, too regularly, but it's great to be back this morning. Uh, if you have your copy of Scripture or can read on the, on the screen, turn to Mark chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses 14 to 20. And I apologize if I'm reading from a slightly different version that you might have up there, but it's the same Word of God. Mark 1, verses 14 to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a beautiful new day, uh, another gift that you have given to us out of the abundance of your grace. We thank you this morning also for your word and that we can turn to it now. And we pray, Father, that you would guide our thoughts as we consider your words for a few moments. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be present in this place and that you would uh, enable me to speak clearly as I ought and that you would enable the hearts and the ears of our hearers in here to, to hear the words that you have for them to hear this morning. Lord Jesus, nourish our souls, I pray, this morning. And may we leave this place knowing that we have not heard from men, but that we have heard from you. And so we pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Well, our text this morning is, of course, from Mark chapter 1. And Mark is uh, the shortest gospel. It's also the gospel where the author Mark seems to punch uh, the, the, the stories of Jesus very quickly. They're like little vignettes that just keep popping up. And uh, so he doesn't even consider Jesus' birth or childhood. He just starts right in with the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll start with verses 14 and 15, and we'll be looking at this uh, this morning. And verses 14 and 15, Mark sets the table. He gives us the context of what... Uh, what he's going to be talking about in the following verses. He says, now after John was arrested, and this is important because um, the four men that he's going to see shortly uh, had actually met Jesus prior to this encounter. Uh, we tend to think that they came out of nowhere and Jesus had never seen them before, but that's actually not the case. Um, we read earlier in, in this uh, chapter that John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, and if you turn over to John chapter 1, you will see that when, after jo Jesus had been baptized by John, uh, some of 
John the Baptist's disciples actually kind of followed after Jesus. And one of those was Andrew. Uh, and when Andrew saw Jesus after his baptism, he, he brought his brother Simon, Simon Peter, and went and they, and they spent a day with Jesus, it says in John chapter 1. And so this happened probably several months before uh, the encounter that we'll read about today and look at today. So it's important to understand that these men, these fishermen, had had an encounter with Jesus before, and they had actually come to believe, uh, John chapter 1 tells us, that Jesus was the Messiah. That happened in the south of Israel, down in the region of Judea. This encounter today, Mark tells us, happens in Galilee, which is in the northern part of the country. Um, this is where these four men, these two sets of brothers, this is where they lived, and this is where they worked along the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. John, uh, Mark also tells us that Jesus had come, and he was proclaiming the good news. Uh, the good news, of course, for the people of the Jews was that they were going to be freed. They were going to be released. The Messiah was going to come and be this king to save them from Rome. But Jesus does not come with that kind of kingdom. And so these expectations of the Jewish people were not going to be met in the way that they expected. Uh, Jesus had another kingdom in mind. So to sum up this context of these first two verses, the Messiah has arrived, the Son of God has come, He's coming to fulfill all the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. He's come as a king, although the people didn't gen generally didn't recognize him. Uh, and th but this kingdom was a spiritual kingdom that was breaking into the status quo of normal life. But Jesus has come in a manner uh, that is, a, is a, in a spiritual manner which, in which he is encouraging people and calling people to repentance and faith not to rebellion and independence and freedom over Rome. Now Jesus at this point obviously still had work to be done. Uh, he had a lot to accomplish. He had his life to live, his ministry, uh, two to three years yet remaining, and uh, of course his death and his resurrection. He would, he would complete and accomplish this work that the Father had sent him to do, but in the process he was also looking at how that work would continue. He had his work to accomplish, but he also had that work to have ongoing ramifications throughout the rest of history. And so at the very outset of his ministry, what we read about today, <clears throat> he's not only starting his ministry, he's beginning to look ahead past his ministry to what would come after. And that's where he goes about calling his first disciples. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're going to look at verses 16 to 20 here. And here we see Jesus calling his first, first four disciples. And then we're going to ask three simple questions. First of all, who were the recipients of the call or who was called? We're going to ask what, was, what kind of call was this? What was the manner of this call? And then we're going to ask what was this a call to? So who were the recipients? What kind of call was it? And what, was it being, what were they being called to? Who was called? Who are the recipients? Well, we've already said these are two sets of brothers, Andrew and Simon, or Peter, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And of course, they were fishermen, and uh, even our little children this morning caught that. And these were common, average, hardworking men, uh, nothing glamorous, nothing fancy. 
They were not from society's elite in terms of wealth, although they probably were fairly well off. It says that they had servants working with them. They were probably fishing partners in some kind of a fishing co-op uh, where they pooled their resources and, and their, their catches and, and worked together. And they all fished in the Sea of Galilee. So they were probably middle class or lower middle class, not highly educated, common average artisans of that day. Unremarkable men at best. And uh, again, nothing fancy and certainly not the type of men we would choose if we wanted to start a global movement. Uh, in, in reality, they were a lot like what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 when he says, uh, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus. So these were probably the men that were overlooked, the average, the common. They didn't turn heads, and they certainly didn't have a lot of followers on Twitter or Instagram but these are the men that Jesus was choosing for his mission. It's important though that we realize that this isn't the only type of people that Jesus chose throughout his ministry. Paul himself was an elite scholar and was later chosen by Jesus. A few chapters later, Matthew is chosen as one of the disciples. He was probably a man of considerable wealth. And so God chooses from all different uh, classes of society. But in this case, these first four, he's choosing from the common, overlooked, unremarkable uh, group of people. And what's the point here? The main point here is that whatever our backgrounds are, wherever we come from, we bring nothing to the table. None of our backgrounds, none of our skills, none of our talents, none of our gifts either limits or merits Jesus' decision to call us to himself. None of what we have gives us a leg up. We are called not based on what we can add to the team. Jesus doesn't recruit on skills, on pedigree, on income, on education, on social standing, on race, on gender. None of this matters. None of it impacts his decision to call us. None of us possesses anything by which we can boast. So God calls all types of people, and he calls all types of people in order to reach all types of people, from blind beggars to average blue-collar workers to wealthy businessmen to elite scholars. He decides who to call and how to use them, not us. And nothing we have impacts his decision. But notice also that these men are not exactly super spiritual. They don't come from the power centers in Jerusalem or from the religious elite. In fact, they're not giants of the faith at all. If you were to survey scripture, the, the gospels, you would find that these men were actually rather immature spiritually. They were impetuous and did things without thinking. They were rash, they were proud, they were fearful. They often got angry. In fact, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were called the sons of thunder. They lacked foresight, they lacked sympathy, they lacked love. 
Who were these people? They certainly weren't religious or spiritual superheroes. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was not choosing men based on who they were or how spiritual they were. He was choosing them based on who he would make them to be. And this is a critical point to understand. Jesus was taking what was unusable in its natural state and he was going to transform it into something that would start an unstoppable global movement. Jesus was going to transform the impetuous into the patient, the rash into the wise, the proud into the humble, the fearful into the bold, the angry into the gracious, the unloving into the loving. He was going to transform the faithless into the faithful, the timid into the courageous, the aimless and those, to those dedicated and loyal to his purposes. He was going to change the prayerless into the prayerful. He was going to change the immature into rocks of faithful maturity. This was the work that Jesus was going to do through his gospel of repentance and faith. He was going to transform these men from the inside out. That's the kind of men, that's the kind of people that Jesus was calling. And he was calling people who he would change. And he does the same today. Many of us who are believers in this room can look back and see the transformation that Jesus has worked in our lives. And we thank him with all of our hearts. And perhaps if you're in this room today and you haven't, ex haven't experienced that, that transforming power in your life, this is a day that he would call you. But let's move on. We've seen the type of people, the recipients of the call. Let's look at what kind of call this was. In a word, this was a divine call. It was divine in a number of ways. First, as Mark has already pointed out, it was of divine origin. This call came from the Son of God. In chapter one, verse one, right off the bat, Mark calls Jesus the, the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. And a few verses later in, in verse, verse 11, at his baptism, Mark recounts that the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven, from God the Father, said, you are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. So there's no mistaking then that the person that was calling these men was the divine son of God, and therefore a, it was a divine call. Notice that Jesus says, follow me. They're to follow him and him alone. They're not to follow some agenda. They're not to follow some program. They're not to follow some method or some 21 steps to new life. They're not to follow some movement even. They're not even to follow some godly pastor or teacher. He calls them to follow him, the Son of God. And it's the same for us today. We are not primarily followers of a religion or of a prescribed set of commands. We are called to follow Christ, which we saw so poignantly this morning with follow the leader. And how do we do that? Well, he's given us the scriptures, and that shows us what this means and what it looks like. He's also given us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us and correct us and convict us as we follow him. So don't let anything distract us. Let's not let anything distract us or dissuade us from following Jesus. So it's a divine, it's a call of divine origin, but it's also a call with divine initiative. These men are coming, are hard, hard at work. They got up that morning, had no expectation that Jesus was going to arrive. 
They're not seeking Jesus out at this point. They're working. Instead, Jesus comes and seeks them out and calls them to himself. It's interesting, and New Testament scholars tell us that rabbis, teachers, religious teachers of this day, often took applicants and looked over who they uh, wanted to be their followers and, and uh, accepted their applications, so to speak, much like we do at universities. But this isn't what Jesus did. He wasn't looking for applicants to come follow him. He went out and found his own disciples. The other thing rabbis in that day used to do was that they would uh, go through the training program with their disciples and then set them to work. But Jesus doesn't do that either. Jesus calls them and starts them on their, uh, the ministry right away. He doesn't wait until they've reached a certain level. The training began on day one, and so did the ministry. So notice the divine initiative, and it's a different initiative than what comes in typical human standards. But third, we see that there's divine power, there's divine authority in this call. This was the kind of call that created what it commanded. This was the kind of call that produced what it asked for. It is a creative call, much like at creation, when God said, let there be, and there was light, and there was the world, and it was created out of, out of his word, and the whole world came into existence. This is a similar type of call, because it's a divine call. It has divine power and divine authority. It created the obedience which it demanded. Common commentators of the New Testament like to point out the radical obedience that these men displayed how they left everything aside, their nets, their boats, etc. And that's true, and we'll get to that shortly, but it's absolutely critical that we understand that their obedience is not the focus of this verse. Their response is not what Mark is focusing on. Mark is pointing out, and we dare not miss this, that the he's pointing out the, and emphasizing who was calling and the authority of the call that then produced the obedience that was called for. It's the same power and authority that later spoke to the same group of men and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We also see that this was a divine, a, a divine call that, that had divine provision. We've pointed this out already, but it's worth repeating. This divine provision was what led to the process of their being transformed. Jesus wasn't just recruiting. He was recruiting in order to change, to transform, and he was recruiting in order to ensure that his desired purposes would be achieved. Jesus tells these men that he will make them become fishers of men. He is turning them into something and he will see that that's accomplished. He is not only the creator, the initiator, he is also the completer of that process. It's similar to what Paul says in Philippians when he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if you're, an, if you're a believer this morning, be encouraged. God is not finished with you. He is working on you and he will complete that work. Sometimes it's helpful for us to look back and see the progress that we've made in this, in this sanctification process. It's, 
it's helpful to look back six months or a year or even five years, and it's helpful to ask questions of ourselves. Do we treasure him more than other things, more than nets, more than boats, more than father, more than job? Are my affections for Jesus growing stronger, and am I holding things of this world more loosely than before? These are good questions to ask. And if the and the proper response, if we don't see uh, good progress, is to repent, not to try harder, but to turn ourselves over again to the cross and to Jesus and to ask him to do his work in us. He will complete that process. And what is he doing all these divine acts in us for? Well, he has a divine purpose. And it's to that divine purpose that we turn our attention in these final moments. And to our third question, what was this a call to? What is the divine intent and purpose of this call? Three things. First, it was a call to become. We've already mentioned this, so we'll go over it quickly. It was a call to become something. The becoming preceded the doing. This is important. God is more interested in what we're becoming than in what we're doing. God wants to see us become something. He is transforming us before we get to the part of radical obedience. I emphasize this again because we so often in our human state get it backwards. We emphasize the need for radical obedience. We emphasize the need for doing what God says to do, for following the laws and for loving our neighbor and all those things, and that's good. But before we do that, we must understand that radical obedience comes from radical dependence on Jesus and on God's gracious work in the gospel. We must get into the mindset that we need him more than he needs us. And we should focus on what he's doing in us, what he's making us to be, before we focus on what we should be doing for him. Only when we're properly fixated on Jesus and what he's done and what he's doing in us and in others will we have the proper perspective to go about doing what he wants us to do. But it is also a call to do. So don't get that. It just comes second. There is doing to be done. There is a, this is the proper perspective. Here Jesus calls what he call, what he's calls that doing is fishing for men and for women. I know there are people probably in this very room who love to fish, but we need to understand that this type of fishing is not what we think of fishing today. Uh, we see fishing as a hobby or as a getaway, uh, a recreational activity, something we do on weekends or vacations, uh, a chance to get away from the stress of work and out into the beauty of nature, you know, maybe with a few friends, but away from the crowds. This is not what Jesus is calling these men to. It's far from it. For starters, fishing in those days in first century uh, Galilee was brutally hard work and involved significant danger and long hours, often overnight, under grueling conditions. It meant staying up all night on choppy or stormy seas in dubiously constructed vessels and then spending most of the day processing the catch, mending nets, and preparing to do it all over again the following night. They had no highly engineered fiberglass vessels, no strong nylon nets made in 
made in factories with machines, no outboard or inboard motors to scoot them around the Sea of Galilee quickly. They had no refrigeration to preserve their catch and their potential income. They had no seven-day weather forecast. They had no radios, no cell phones, no satellite phones to call for help if they needed, and certainly no Coast Guard to come to the rescue. These men understood what Jesus was calling them to when he said, become fishers of men. He was not calling them to some recreational hobby. Instead, he was calling them to something that they were already familiar with, hard work, high risk, dangerous environments, and little in the way of safety nets. But this language of fishers of men is also bursting with meaning from the Old Testament. If you turn back to Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, God is speaking to Jeremiah about the rebellion of his people Israel and how he's going to send them out into the nations as punishment for their idolatry. But then he says at the right time, he's gonna bring them back and restore them. And this is what he says. He says, behold, or listen carefully, I'm going to send for many fishermen and they will fish for them, that is his scattered people. And afterwards I will send for many hunters and they will hunt for them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rocks. And so the point here is that when Jesus calls these men to be fishers of men, he is calling them to the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's calling them to become the means by which this promise will be fulfilled that he had made 500 years earlier. He is setting in motion his purposes to achieve this great ingathering of his people scattered throughout every nation. He is calling them to become laborers in his kingdom. Jesus was setting all this in motion that morning when he called these men next to the Sea of Galilee. And this purpose continues today. These men were faithful to the call, but Jesus is still calling and he's still making us into fishers of men because there are still those of his people scattered throughout the world who he wants to gather into his family. His table is not yet full. He is still building his church, and he still graciously and divinely calls us to be involved in that task, either by sending or by going or by both. But there's also an inherent warning in this call, because any call to something is necessarily a call away from something. Notice what these men have to abandon as they follow their call, Jesus' call in their lives. They abandon their nets and their boats. They abandon their servants. They even abandon their father, Zebedee, and leave him behind. They walk away from their secular vocations. They walk away from their livelihoods. They walk away from their professions. They set aside financial security and stability and embrace a downward mobility, financially and socially. They relegate themselves to flying in the middle seat of coach and driving high-mileage used cars and living in fixer-uppers. They even gave up family, working with their father. They gave up living in the same town and having their kids grow up near grandparents. You get the idea. Following Jesus and becoming an instrument in the building of his kingdom means setting aside other pursuits. This doesn't look the same for everyone. Jesus doesn't call everyone to the same task. It's always different, and there are different seasons as well but there will always be something that we need to set aside if we are to keep Jesus first and foremost in our lives. It's about priorities. Some look at this and see sacrifice, but that's not what these men saw. It reminds me of what a 
missionary to Africa, David Livingston, said back in the 1800s. He was talking to a group of students in Cambridge University in England who asked him about his, the sacrifices that he gave up to work in Africa as a pioneer missionary. And he said this, quote, people talk of sacrifice, people talk of the sacrifice I made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view, and away with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and the charities of, of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. And he closes this way, I never made a sacrifice. So what possible explanation can there be for this type of response, for this perspective, for this kind of radical obedience? The only explanation that can be provided for this type of response is that they, through the eyes of faith, had come to regard a life of total abandon to Jesus Christ as far exceeding anything this world could possibly offer. To these men and to all who follow Jesus, Jesus had become the pearl of great price. He had become their exceeding joy and their priceless treasure, that for which they would willingly and gladly part with anything that this world had to offer. Jesus became so beautiful, so attractive, so irresistible that everything else paled in response. This, these are the eyes of faith that we need to see Jesus. When we see Jesus like this, it's a no-brainer to follow him. In closing then, we might say it this way. We might conclude and say radical obedience, or better yet, the obedience that looks radical to the world must be preceded and accompanied by resolute faith. Otherwise, it's really nothing at all. What looks like radical obedience must be preceded and accompanied by resolute faith. Otherwise, it's worthless. This is the gospel. This is the good news that changes everything. It's Jesus. This is what sets true Christianity apart from every other religion, philosophy, teaching, or movement this world has ever known. These all, in some form, preach obedience as the root of acceptance and of merit. The gospel teaches obedience as the fruit of a relationship of, with Jesus Christ, entered only by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is a free gift. This is the radical call of the gospel. It is a call to, by faith, believe, trust, and embrace and treasure and value Jesus above all things, to forsake everything else and follow Jesus Christ alone. And in so doing, he will make us become fishers of men for our great joy and for his great glory. Amen.